One of the darkest situations and circumstance for a human being is put on display in the psalm before us. It is darkness and hopelessness unless it meets with the darkest moment of history, which is when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified for sinners for his sons and for his daughters, absorbing the wrath of God, the darkest moment of history. Well, we will experience the darkness unless we meet that moment with embrace. So we're going to see here this morning in our passage in Psalm 119, this horrific verse, if nothing were to change. A verse that ought to make us tremble. A verse that ought to give us reminder. A verse that ought to give us gratitude, but also grieving for those who do not yet realize. Let me pray for us before we open up our Psalm 119 together. Let me pray. Oh God, you are right. You are just. You are abundant in mercy and steadfast love. We pray that this morning you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things out of your word, that you would teach us to obey, that you would incline our hearts to uh, hear and follow and submit. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 119, verse 155 and 156. This is God's word. It says, Salvation is far from the wicked. For they do not seek your statutes. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life according to your rules. May God bless his word to our understanding and his glory this morning. Verse 155 paints this picture that is devastating. Salvation is far from the wicked. So before you even think about the distance or the, the, the topic, you must think about who are the wicked. If salvation is far from them, well, who are they? Who are the wicked? The average person does not want to think of themselves or their family or their neighbors as wicked. They want to reserve that term and that concept for those like Adolf Hitler, like Osama bin Laden, like people who hurt children. Those are the wicked, not me. Don't don't clump me in with them. Don't clump my my cousin in with them. They're, They're not the wicked. They just are, you know. Good people, right? Who, who maybe, yeah, they're not religious, but they're definitely not wicked. That's what most people think. And so when they come across something like this, sometimes it doesn't have the impact that it should. But when we realize what the Bible describes as wickedness, it is those who walk apart from God. Those who live contrary to the one who made them. With the very mouth that God gives them, they spit in His face. With the very breath that He sustains them with, they use it to curse Him. With the very mind that He allows them to have, they disengage Him and suppress the truth about Him. 
With the offer of love he supplies them, they say, no. With the way of forgiveness, they say, I'll choose my way. And with the hope of eternity, they say, if it means it's doing your thing, then no. I'll take my own way. That, that's wickedness. A God so gracious and merciful, so powerful and creative, so majestic and worthy of glory and adoration, and yet snuffed out by people, suppressed, pushed away, ignored, disregarded. That is wickedness. That's at the heart of all wickedness. Those people who we think are the height examples of a wicked person, it all begins with suppressing the truth about God, insisting on their own way, being selfish, ignoring the commands of God and, and doing what they want. They don't want to love others. They want to serve themselves. They don't care about glorifying God. They care about making themselves feel great and making themselves big. Being in control, being in charge, being the ones who are at the end of the line. There's no one beyond them. And that's in the heart of all of us. That's wickedness. And so we just see, when we think about the wicked, we just see wickedness unrestrained. We see it play out to its, its worst in people. But just because we don't see the worst in everyone doesn't mean that they are not the wicked. That's still the same trajectory that if they were, if they were left unrestrained, they would likely do the same horrific things. Each of us has that capacity. If we were to stop for one minute and think that we do not have the capacity to do what Hitler did, we're not being honest with ourselves. We are of the same makeup. We have the capacity to do what he did. So we must admit that I, too, am prone to wickedness, even in the slightest of ways, that if it is not restrained, it could turn into that. And we see that. History tells us, just repeats this truth of people unrestrained in their wickedness, disregarding God, living for themselves, and not loving others, and you see what happens. Just a, it's just a path of destruction, a path of hatred, a path of selfishness. And, and it all begins with a suppression of the truth about God saying, I won't have him. So that's the wicked. And what's terrifying about the wicked is each of us is in that place. Our neighbor, our loved one is in that place of being lumped in here as the wicked so now that we understand who, who they are, who is it speaking of, we, we see the darkness of this, this verse is that for them, salvation is far from them. Salvation, deliverance, <coughs> excuse me, hope is far from them, far from the wicked. Charles Bridges says of this verse, Indeed, all the misery that an immortal soul is capable of enduring throughout eternity is included in this sentence. Salvation is far from the wicked. All misery is included in this verse. There is no forgiveness. There is no joy. 
There is no satisfaction. There is no fulfilled purpose. Salvation is far from the wicked. It's devastating. It's devastating. It's far. It's out of reach. It's not something they can grasp onto, not something they can cling to, not something they can hope in because it's, it's out of sight. They can't even see it. As uh, God says through the prophet Isaiah in, in Isaiah 57, 21 says, There is no peace for the wicked. There's no peace for them. There's no salvation, no hope, no settled heart, no realization of forgiveness, no freedom from guilt and shame. There is no hope of what is yet to come. There is no peace for the wicked. And that's a devastating factor. Salvation is far from the wicked. This ought to grieve us. Jesus tells of the rich man, and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. Let me read it for you and we'll see this concept um, shown for us here. It says, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up, uh, he lifted up his eye and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus was at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Besides this, between us and you, listen carefully, is a great chasm. Between us and you is a great chasm that has been fixed. In order that those who pass from here to you may not be able. And none may cross from there to us. And he said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, lest they may also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. You hear that? You hear that? You hear of a great chasm. This man is in torment, in agony, facing the punishment for his sin that he well deserves, that we all deserve. Lazarus, recipient of mercy, is comforted by God's side. And this man who lived for himself now is in agony. And, and there's a great chasm. Salvation was far off. Comfort was far off. And his one desire was just go and tell my brothers, I don't want them to end up where I am. 
This is a hopeless place, a place of agony, and I don't want this for them. So he says, just go, warn them, tell them. And the answer was, they have the word of God, let them hear it. That's sufficient. And what's amazing is, look at our verse again, it was Psalm 119, 155. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. They have the word of God. And they, they don't listen to it. They don't look at it. They disregard it. They ignore it. They don't want anything to do with it whatsoever. They won't have it. And so when uh, this rich man says, well, no, just go and tell them. What was sufficient was that they had God already speak to them. God already has spoken by Moses and the prophets. That was sufficient warning to say that you can't live for yourself and you must trust in God's way of salvation. The Bible is sufficient for this warning. The Bible declares that salvation is far from the wicked. So then, if one hears that, if one realizes, I think I'm clumped in with the wicked, I realize that I have offended God, what am I to do? What must I do to be saved, is the cry of one who realizes that they need saving. One who realizes they need deliverance. The cry is, what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I turn to for help? The scripture is full page after page after page saying, just repent. turn from trusting your own ways. Repent. Don't trust in your own ways. Don't trust in your own uh, good deeds or your own religious system. Don't. Trust in God. Put your hope in God. Believe in God and His way for you. That's where we find it in, in the scriptures. So that's when uh, Abraham tells this man, he tells him, let them hear the word of God. And this man argues back. He says, no, 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 no. They won't hear it. They're not seeking it. I did it, and I know they aren't. And it's not going to be enough. If someone goes from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham says to this man, he says, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to the word of God, it doesn't matter what else. Nothing else will convince them. The thing that is meant to convince us of our wickedness and of our need of God is the word of God. The word of God is sufficient. And so in verse 155 of Psalm 119, it's devastating because salvation is out of reach for these people because they do not seek the word of God. The very way of salvation displayed for them, told to them, laid plainly before them. They disregard, ignore, and put it away altogether. That's why it's so devastating. That's why it's so dark. That's why there's such a great chasm. Salvation is far from the wicked because they disregard the way of salvation displayed for them in the simple pages of God's word, his statutes. They disregard it altogether. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we aren't much different. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. 
having no hope and without God in this world. I'm going to read that again. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. You too face the chasm. Earlier in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This too was our circumstance. 155 was our situation. Salvation was far from us. We were wicked. We were separated from Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We followed and we were the sons of disobedience. That was our lot. But then you read verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Great is your mercy. Ephesians chapter 2 carries on. It says, You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What a contrast. Night and day. Darkness and light, isn't it? Verse 155, salvation is far. It is unreachable, unattainable for the wicked. They can't do it. They can't see it. They're so far from it. But, 156, great is your mercy. And so, David here, recounting for himself, like, I, I was there. I was far off. It was not attainable to me. Nothing I could do could, could get this. But God, you are great in mercy. I grieve for my former life and I grieve for those who don't yet know. But oh, am I grateful for your mercy. Great is your mercy. Give me life. Revive me. Show me the life you've given me. Remind me of the life which you gave me according to your word. Your word woke me up. Your word, spoken or read, woke me up. That's why Romans chapter 10, so beautiful, talks about like, hey, you know, if anyone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if anyone believes in their heart, confesses with their mouth, believes that Christ is raised from the dead, if anyone believes that, they will be saved. Anyone. Romans 10 says, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how are they going to do it? Romans 10 says, well, they're going to do it eventually by hearing the word. That's why it says, um, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Give me life according to your rules. Help. Teach me again. Show me again your mercy. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Made us alive, Ephesians says. He made us alive. Our situation was 
Salvation far from the wicked. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were trapped in our, in our slavery to sin, in our shame, in our filth, in our guilt. But great is your mercy, O Lord. This, this, these two verses really, really mess with our emotions because in one sense we, we are to be grieved for those who do not embrace and understand the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have not been saved. And, and we're grieved because they don't know it. They don't know it. It's like this rich man that, that Jesus tells of. He didn't know, and he, and he knows his brothers have no clue. And he says, they're going to perish. They have no idea. And the word of God was enough. The word of God is sufficient. And, and so we are grieved because our day and age, even church folk, are biblically illiterate. People don't read their Bibles. No one knows the truth. No one has seen how holy and pure and just and righteous God is. No one has seen him as creator and sustainer. No one understands that they have offended this God. Not just offended, but sinned against him. No one realizes that, they, that salvation is far from them. They think that they're pretty good people and that good people get to heaven. Because they haven't read the word. And even Christians today are so shallow on our understanding of sin, on our reading of scripture, that we often don't grieve as we ought. You know, when you read the Apostle Paul talking about being in anguish for those who do not believe, you think, oh, if I could only be there, if I could only grieve as Paul grieved, if I really understood that salvation is far from the wicked, then I might be moved to do something. And may that be true of you and of me. Maybe, maybe remember, maybe believe this. May we actually believe 155 in all of Scripture, which tells us this. May we truly believe it so that we would realize what God has saved us from, what he saved us to, that, he, that he's saved us to a purpose, to a hope, to his glory, and that that just stirs up more gratitude as we realize his, his great mercy, but also realizing that his great mercy is not just for me, but for those whom he has died and, and for those who would hear, have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. So we tell of his great mercy. We tell of his great mercy so that even if, as, as this rich man said, like, just go tell them. Go tell them. Go back from the dead. Because that's what they're going to need. They're going to need some sort of miracle. Let's just be people who declare the word of God as, as Jesus said was sufficient. It was sufficient to show people who God is, how we've sinned against him, and, and what the solution is. It's, it's mercy. We must come begging as beggars, really, saying, I have nothing to bring to you, God. I, I literally have nothing. I need mercy. It's not that we can make a deal or I have enough here to put a down payment on. No, no, no. It is, I need mercy and mercy alone because I have nothing to bring. I have nothing sufficient to offer. All I have to offer is brokenness and shame. That's the gospel. Is we come to the cross in that way. We come to God in his great mercy 
and we say, give me life. That's how we begin our, our repaired relationship with God, and that's how we sustain it. God, give me life. Revive me. Show me again your great mercy. Show me what you delivered me from so that I might be all the more grateful today. I may not take it for granted today, and I may use all of myself for you today. And help me then also to grieve for those who are far off from you, those whose salvation is a far off thing. Help me to be very aware of their circumstance today, that you might move my heart, that you might transform me so that I can speak to them, speak the truth in love, that I might serve them in order to to tell them of your salvation. God, this is what I want for my life, and this is what I want for the life of those around me. I want them to not just be stuck in the darkness of salvation being far from the wicked. I want them to experience your great mercy that is said in verse 156. Great is your mercy, O Lord. Give me life. So God, I pray that we would live that life that you have given us. The life of uh, a newness in Christ. The, the one that has been delivered from the darkness and the, the shame and the distance. The chasm that you've closed for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. That you've brought us over this great space. The space that we could never build enough religion, do enough good deeds. The chasm that was impassable because of our brokenness. But through the Lord Jesus Christ, we are, we've made it safely to the other side, not because of anything in us, but because of your great mercy alone. God, let us live as people who are beyond grateful for that. And because of our gratitude, we do something for those around us who are still in darkness, who are still far off, who have not seen in your word, who disregard your word, who have not understood who you are, how they have sinned against you, and the way that you have made to forgive them. That you being rich in mercy, even while we were still trespassing and breaking your rules, you saved us and made us alive in Christ. So God, thank you for doing that for those of us who are believers. We pray for those who are not yet believers that you would uh, allow them to come, that you would show them this, that you would show them their circumstance, and that you would show them the simplicity of the gospel, that they would just repent, they would turn from trusting in their own ways, turn from their selfish desires, and say, I want to live for Christ. I believe him. I believe he died and rose again. And that they may live, truly live, in light of your great mercy. God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.